welcome to the Spark of Life podcast, conversations about love, loss, and everything in between. I am Vincent Reinhardt. And I'm Claudia Reinhardt. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, episode three, bipolar disorder. We're going to talk about the types of bipolar, the states that bipolar has, uh, misdiagnosis, some of the origins of it, uh, suicide, concurrent disorders, and some other topics when it comes down to medication, family, work, and school. Great. And before getting into it, we want to include our short disclaimer. Well, and in this case, I think it especially is apropos because we are definitely, we're not doctors, we're not therapists, we're not mental health professionals of any kind. And in this case, when we're talking about bipolar, we're coming at it only from a personal experience and personal knowledge and research that we have done. Um, But our podcast is not intended to provide any sort of therapeutic or medical advice. We're just a married couple who struggle and work through all the topics that we talk about. And our hope is that you may glean something from our successes and failures, and that it may help you guide on your own journey and take what resonates with you and don't sweat about the rest. It's life and we're all eternal work in progress and always learning. Our topics are diverse and we don't shy away from tough and potentially triggering subjects. And if you are struggling, please seek help from a professional or someone that you trust. Thank you. Today I'm going to talk about uh, my bipolar diagnosis. And but first of all, I want to mention that for many years I was actually misdiagnosed. I was being treated for depression when I first started having my first depressive state at about 10 years old, but uh, it wasn't treated, not until I was later on a teen. But throughout it all, throughout growing up, I had been treating the doctors for depression, which wasn't, I wasn't able to find relief from it, uh, from my emotional states. And for years, I didn't even know what was going on. And I've heard this is actually pretty common, isn't it? Like a lot of, I think when reading about it, a lot of people often who do have bipolar end up being misdiagnosed with depression because it's the most standout or, mm-hmm. the, or the symptom or the state that seems to stand out the most. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, most obvious or sometimes most concerning, although obviously mania left unchecked, you know, can well, develop into its own cycle and destructive. Yeah. Well, what you usually go to the doctors for depression. You don't, right. you don't go to the doctors when you're, you're having a, a grand old time in life and you well, life, until you're it starts it. to get bad, obviously. Like yeah. I suppose if you're a teen and you've blown all your money and you're on the street and yeah, I mean, or, you know, you've gone off and started some grandiose idea and, and now you're in the hole, you know, like yeah. I suppose un- unless it gets really bad, then yes, people aren't usually going to step in they maybe just think oh it's just they're enthusiastic or they're getting caught up in that energy or who knows you know maybe just youth or they're that's just how they are yeah yeah mm-hmm. well one of the only around in my early 20s uh i had stumbled across an article that made uh, i was reading the new- newspaper and it made me very upset and I became very angry reading this article. And from that moment on, for about two weeks straight, I was physically, I was so angry. I couldn't calm down. I couldn't do anything natural that would allow me to just, you know, kind of get it together. Only when I, I finally, I said, something's wrong. I have to, I need to go see a doctor about this because this doesn't feel right. And sorry, so, what what age was that again? Uh, early twenties. Hmm. Do you do you remember what the article was about? Um, I someone I think some little old lady got beat up or something oh, like I that okay. in Surrey, yeah. and uh, but it just of course you have emotional states uh, feel reactive towards something, but right. you know I I felt reactive, but then the anger just didn't go away, and uh, I I would exercise, I would take my uh, antidepressants, and it was just escalating. And so I finally took myself off to the doctor and I said, listen, this is these are my symptoms mm-hmm. and I don't understand why I can't calm down. Right. And only then did we um, figure out that uh, what, what I was going through was bipolar. And um, now at the time, I didn't really heed that type of information. It was just kind of like, okay, this is a new term. It's, uh, I didn't really investigate anything beyond, um, hey, here's some medication, you'll get better type thing. I didn't really have a good psychiatrist at the time. 
So and and was this this before we had ever gotten together um, when you got the diagnosis or around that time? I would yeah, say yeah, because I I remember you going for. If he was a general practitioner, mm-hmm. but it was someone who at least was referring you, I think. But but this is not the same time, was it? This is in out in Coquitlam. Yeah, it was out in oh, Coquitlam. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so then we we were together then, or this. So I guess you never did get a diagnosis before. No, we started dating. So okay. No, so I was being treated for depression. Right. And so over time. Um, when I, you know, more or less started growing up, mm-hmm. uh, I'd come to understand uh, a bit about the bipolar types that are there. So I'm bipolar two with mixed episodes. So there's bipolar one, which has at least one manic episode uh, during their lifetime, uh, but they also can suffer with depression as well. Um, bipolar two has up moods, more like hypomania, not full-blown mania. And these intense moods, um, when they come around, they usually will have a depressive state that follows soon after. Um, As for mixed episodes, what happens is that you can have both mania and depression together at the same time. Uh, And that part can make you really unstable. Okay, and I know the next one is cyclothymic disorder. I I remember hearing that sort of it's one of its unofficial nicknames is bipolar three, so a lesser version or of bipolar. But I believe you know it has mood swings that are between short periods of mild depression and mania. But I actually, it was funny. I was watching a recent episode uh, with a psychologist on YouTube, kind of diagnosing and just going through diagnoses and. I think even now in the in the DSM, which is sort of the diagnostic tool that psychiatrists use and therapists use, that it's I don't think it's even in bipolar anymore. It's no. it's sort of in a bridging category. So yeah. I mean this goes beyond uh, you know, our knowledge about it and I know that you sit in the bipolar two category. Yeah, with mixed episodes. And that came over time, especially having to do something called mood charting. Uh, So you're just pretty much tracking your moods to see exactly how many times you go up and how many times you go down. Right. So I'm more predominantly down, mostly uh, a depressive state. But uh, when I do take medication to manage the ups, Um, but I'll get into that in a moment. Uh, I'll just describe a little bit about what the two main states are with all the bipolar. So there's a high state and a low state. And for the high state, it's mania or hypomania. Uh, You have a lot of energy, uh, high wired feeling, racing thoughts, talking fast, pressured speech, uh, a lot of risk-taking, hypersexuality, need less sleep, and you get really distracted. And sometimes you get an overwhelming sense of smell and touch, and not to forget grandiosity. Um, as for the lows known as depression, and most people is pretty familiar with depressive states is, you know, feeling sad or empty with little energy. Uh, you cannot enjoy regular activities. You can either sleep too much or too little, a hard time getting out of bed, eat too little or too much, trouble focusing or remembering things and hard time making decisions. And sometimes it can get extreme where you think about death or suicide. And uh, those are the two main consistent states that uh, fluctuates back and forth. Um, Sometimes with bipolar 1, they'll consistently have more highs than than the other um, states. I thought it was also that the duration of these states or episodes are longer in bipolar 1, like a manic episode instead of being... A week, it can be months or like half a year or something. Yeah, long they, like that. they can. Uh, you know, usually it gets really extreme if it's not under control. Right. And because, like any manic state, grandiosity starts coming around. And then, so whatever you, you might have these grand plans of suddenly wanting to write your life story and, you know, go traveling around the world promoting it just out of the blue, it can you can get these great surges of energies and focus to do those things, but you have no awareness of the reality of what it needs, what it actually needs to, you need to do in order to make a possible 
idea like that happen. Like you, you disregard the reality of how things operate in the world. So, so I guess, you know, it's like the, the ideas are there and the creative spark, but it's like the endurance to fall, like to make it, follow it through and actually execute it fully and maintain and some, yeah, some people actually can, um, are very lucky that they can harness that energy and mm-hmm. use it creatively. Uh, but that also means that, you know, you're properly medicated. Uh, Although, so, I don't know, wouldn't, 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 isn't, I thought Kanye West is, doesn't he like officially like, diagnose? he's diagnosed, but, but he's also like kind of avoids medication because it doesn't he f- feel he gets gets in the way of his creative Creativity. process. Yeah, yes. yeah, it I does. Mean, and he, I think he officially said that on like on Twitter or something multiple times yeah. or on shows. I think. Yeah, yes, he's definitely one of many famous people who have been diagnosed with it, and right. it's good to see that you know people are actually sharing that part of themselves because you know. It, it kind of makes sense for some of his outlandish uh, actions that he's done over the years. And it kind of, it makes sense now because, you know, those wayward, spontaneous um, actions that he would do, you'd be, what are you doing? What is going on? It's right. like, but it totally makes sense now. It's like, yeah. oh, you have bipolar. So uh, yeah, he's a great example, definitely. Do you think that... Like, you know, when you have celebrities in the spotlight with, you know, a specific, not just bipolar, but a specific mental condition, Mm -hmm. a serious one, let's say, you know, like bipolar or even schizophrenia or borderline personality. Mm -hmm. Do you think it, when it's put in the media like that and do you think it's downplayed or do you think it's, does it promote the more confusion and misunderstanding about what it's about i mean because obviously people do see a side of it but only one side um and often sometimes it becomes sort of an object of either whether it's pity or or ridicule or just just confusion of like people don't understand what to make of it well there's definitely a stigma around uh, having a mental illness especially the ones like bipolar schizophrenia or borderline personality I think by simply mentioning it, especially in the public, people become aware. People will hear this term and suddenly say, oh, what is this? Maybe go ahead and Google it afterwards. But whereas the old way was like, oh, you have this. Oh, you are a possible danger to society and yourself. And um, yes, there definitely can be parts of any disorder where you can be a harm to yourself. Usually... If treated, though, you can be just like anybody else. Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing, too. It's how do you find these people and treat them? Like, obviously, it's great if one has a family that's aware or is attentive or is able to step in at at an age where there can be a diagnosis and can be sort of professional help along the way from, you know, their adolescent years and up. But obviously, there's a lot that don't have access to those resources or their family is um, just closed-minded and refuse to accept that there is a possibility that there's some anything wrong with their child. Um, or, you know, there's just, or there could be rife um, mental health struggles at home already. So it's just no one's dealing with it. Like the parents aren't dealing with their own. Then obviously like they're not going to be able to be open to the fact that their children might have something. So, Actually, I do have a friend who uh, she does have to deal with a schizoaffective disorder, um, but her parents are very reluctant in uh, accepting her diagnosis completely. Sometimes, you know, her, you know, when she left school, uh, she had to, you know, really face up to her traditional family saying something is wrong. And, and she's an adult now? Or? Yeah, she's an adult now. Okay. And, but her, her family still is expecting her, oh, go back to school more or less. Like, I'm, you know, stop doing what you're doing. And it's like, you can't stop something that is medically going on with you. So, and I've heard a couple of times with her saying how difficult it is to, to have these conversations with her, her parents. Right. And so, you know, even in this day and age, Denial with parents can be very 
very hard and very it can be a reality for some people and you know from my experiences one thing too when i had worked in the downtown east side i had uh really witnessed a number of people with mental health disorders that were untreated and with and as well as having addictions as well and it was very tragic to see that they, the help that they absolutely needed couldn't be available to them because they didn't have anyone advocating for them or know enough about them to allow them to trust, to build trust so that then treatment can happen. Of course. And for the listeners who aren't aware or haven't listened to the previous like introduction podcast, uh, the downtown east side in Vancouver is probably one of the roughest skid rows in Canada for sure. And I think even in North America, it has sort of a reputation. It's it's a huge congregation of not just homeless, but a high addict homeless population. And mixed in with that is definitely, it's not a, it's not an accident or a coincidence. It's the, you know, mental illness, trauma, all these sort of things kind of are connected and related to each other and feed into each other. So yeah, there's something called concurrent disorders. So concurrent disorders is where you have a mental illness and as well as a substance abuse illness and combine it together. They usually go hand in hand. If one is an addict, they'll usually have some type of, of mood disorder as well. Not all the time, but from what I witnessed while working down there was pretty common. And so now it's an actual uh, treatment to be acknowledged that there's concurrent disorders uh, when you do go in for treatment, say with a, a counselor or psychiatrist. And there's also, now this is, I think, just more in, in Vancouver, like the city kind of more public knowledge, but there was also some correlations where, is it Riverview? There was a in Coquitlam. In a, so in a, in a city that's very close by, in sort of the greater Vancouver area, Metro Vancouver area, there uh, used to be a psychiatric hospital, a mental hospital facility called uh, Riverview, that uh, essentially was shut down, like lost funding or just shut down in the late '90s. I mean, a lot of this has there's various reasons for it, but certainly at that point, you know in the media or in the public eye, whether it's films like, you know, One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest or essentially like, you know, the view of this sort of mental institution or the psychiatric institution just has a sort of very negative view and very, and and rightfully so. There's, there's lots of historical examples of sort of the misuse of medicine and psychiatry and, and power over people who are sort of and types of abuse too. And abuse too, yeah. So you know, rightfully there there was a, it wasn't just in the nineties. This had started as far back as yeah the seventies uh, when that film had come out. So by the nineties though, this uh, hospital had completely shut down, and essentially its entire population got displaced. They got yeah they got uh, pushed out uh, from essentially having shelter onto the streets like i think so, and and in some cases i believe you know i don't think it was as irresponsible as as just throwing them out right from the hospital to the street but i think you know regardless even if they provided them housing or provided them options they didn't provide necessarily the training or the life skills or the life skills it's like hey suddenly from being in this institution, institution where you're yeah. given f meals you know, at least your basic needs of your bed and everything are taken care of. And suddenly you're not given any skills and you're just thrown out. And it's like, here you go, here's a place, figure it out on your own. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they were connected to social workers or something, but you know, it's still, that's not enough. It's, it's too much of a transition to ask of anyone. So, and so, and a lot of these people then ended up, you know, along with their mental health issues on the street. And so suddenly you have an explosion Mm -hmm. uh, on the streets in downtown East Side, although that's you know now affected other areas in the Greater Vancouver area. Mm -hmm. Surrey is now 
another one, yeah. especially if you live in that area, you'd, you'd know of this in the last 10 years, just a sudden influx mm-hmm. of that. And now I believe Riverview, Riverview has actually opened again in a limited capacity. I mean, you know, when governments change, policies change, uh, things do sometimes get reevaluated. And so I believe it has opened some wings of it. But, you know, it's it's not at the capacity it was before. And it's still something that's, you know, like I understand from a societal point of view and sort of a, a political point of view, you know, there is a need for these type of facilities. There, There is. And also at the same time, too, especially when patients' rights uh, came into effect that a patient can turn down help if they choose to do so. Right. Um, they, that's their right. And even if you're in a in an unstable, uh, manic state, and you know very high you uh, on drugs or something, and you're very chaotic, um, but people around you are saying you need to go to the doctor, or you need to see somebody. Yeah. So in Vancouver, they do have a uh, a car six seven. It's more like a police uh, that has nurses and police who are aware of, of mental illnesses and they they're a little bit of that go between between the public and the hospitals but um essentially they can come up to you and if you're not if you are still pretty coherent if they say you don't and as a, and you're not saying you're a harm to yourself you can deny all help but that that is the exception. If you are, if you are seen as a harm, you're going to harm yourself, then or you're going to harm you someone else, like assault or abuse someone else or a child. Then under those conditions, they're allowed to. They're allowed to, ta- to take you in, yeah. yeah, into the hospital to be evaluated, as, evaluated, and yeah. then usually assessed, and then they will medicate you to get you to a level that's going to be uh, baseline, work, I guess. baseline, yeah, to yeah. work for you. Well, I was going to talk a bit about one of the states about irritability and irritability, especially in say like a, it can be a manic part of a manic state. And I've seen, and I've experienced as well, having these states where it's unbelievably angry for no reason whatsoever. And I've noticed how over time I had to really understand that the feeling that I'm going through Uh, especially through a lot of therapy, was that I cannot harm people with my anger around me. So, you know, sometimes you can have a temper tantrum and, you know, stamping your feet and just like, you know, shaking your hand at the world. And you realize, like, I can't do this. Like, sometimes they say in certain states that people will use the excuse to say, oh, this is my, this is my mental illness. So you got to accept it. Most of the time, I don't, I usually don't accept that because sometimes it's just, unless you're, if you're very lucid and you're just very angry, you can, you can gain control of yourself. This is something I've, I've seen and I've witnessed. Unless you're completely delusional, of course, then you don't have the ability to manage what your emotional states are. And that's what I respect about you. You're actually willing to look within and actually face these things and tackle them, um, which is why it is so sometimes so scary when you aren't in a place to be able to do that. So like I know when, if you're heavily drinking or when you were heavily drinking or sometimes, especially um, if alcohol was ever combined with certain medication, I believe it was uh, not Ambien, but there was other, yes. Right, and and it seemed to have, that was a few times last year, and I found those experiences very, uh, very painful because it was well, it yeah, wasn't just course. yeah it wasn't just uh so the c- combination between sort of lorazepam or sort of anti anxiety medication and alcohol at least how it acted in your body is that essentially you would be in a very drunk almost delirious state, but would have afterwards would have no memory or recollection, almost like it was like a blackout, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yet reasonably coherent, still able to have conversations. Um, Because I would note actually like, yeah, I would be, we would be having consistent conversations for probably 
maybe like a two to four hour period. And you would have the next day would have no recollection of that. And, and then often though, they, there would, what the combination of those two would bring out, it was, it's probably more less the lorazepam, but more the alcohol. But, but sometimes I found even when taking lorazepam myself, you know, after it comes out of the system, you know, maybe six hours, eight hours max, you know, there is this influx of high anxiety and almost fearful anger that comes with it. It just it seems to be a side effect. So it it's, could be very well a combination of coming off the lorazepam plus the alcohol and then the rage comes out. Yeah, I definitely, you know, that was one thing where I really had to understand was that um, I, I knew over the years that the impact of alcohol had on my emotional states was um, extremely uh it was the main cause for me to have these states of, of being out of control. And what happens though, because I do have concurrent disorder, so, you know, I do have an addiction, uh, so alcoholism uh, with a mood disorder, it's, you know, trying to quit something on your own is very difficult. So, um, and instead I would rather try to, as they'd say, white knuckle it, but it wouldn't last very long. Um, so eventually I had to, I had to go to treatment for that, which I'm very grateful for. But I also, I knew that, you know, I kind of came to a head when there was more situations that was happening of me blacking out and more states of an escalated state was happening more frequently. And, you know, that in my more calmer and stable states would be what's going on here. Like what something has to give because this is not healthy. Mm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to explain a bit, uh, usually with mood disorders, there's, there's the origin of a mood disorder. And for me, I have something more like, uh, complex, uh, PTSD due to various traumas that I had growing up uh, as well as, uh, childhood neglect and growing up in extremely dysfunctional homes uh, and uh, both parents and my aunt and my uncle were addicts and so you know all these things compounded for me to actually have you know one of my first uh, um, depressive extremely depressive state and pushed into mania was uh, that caused my very first attempt was at 14. And, um, you know, only now as an adult, I go back and say, wow, I really didn't have a whole lot there that allowed me to uh, be successful because, you know, you have all this negative situations that you're growing up in. And then emotionally, the body just kind of says, okay, we're going to have to cope in any other way that it possibly can. And I think especially when it's coping, that's what manifests into some of these mood disorders. So, mm. no, I, and I mean, that makes sense. And this is an approach or perspective I've heard in recovery myself, but also heard it not just in, you know, doing 12 step or group therapy or individual counseling, but also even reading books about trauma. Um, Dr. Gabar Mate, who is excellent sort of researcher and looks really deeply into this stuff. He actually was a doctor on the downtown East side for some time operating uh, sort of safe injection clinics and treating yeah. and treating addicts on the downtown East side. And so he had an opportunity to really see and understand and look into the connections between, you know, trauma and addiction and, and even from his perspective and, and it, and it mirrors what I learned through, counseling and therapy and 12 step is that, you know, the addiction, you have to, in some ways, honor it, that it had, you know, especially during a very either traumatic time or very difficult time in our adolescence, it served a purpose. It, in many ways, the addiction was the harm reduction method that we had to implement to just survive, you know, just to get through the next brutal moment mm -hmm. just to live one more day 
And so it it had a purpose. It had a function. It kept us alive just mm-hmm. one more day. And and so in order to really grow from it or move beyond it, we have to almost pay respects for the service that it offered. Mm-hmm. But also at some point understanding or we come to our understanding that okay, thank you for being there, but now it no you no longer serve the purpose you once did that now, you know, after months, years or decades of this addiction, it's it's long past its prime. It's it's now a very destructive cycle. It's it's not helping me in any way. I'm not growing in any way. Um the time of trauma has passed, but you know, now I'm it's sort of creating new trauma either for myself or my family or the people I care about. Um, by my own actions, so, so, I, but I think it's a very different perspective than just seeing the addiction merely as some sort of like out of control demon that's just let loose in the body. It's like you know, it had it was had a purpose, had a function, had a grace to it, and now its time is done, and now it's time to learn a new way, a new mm-hmm. way to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Over time, I also came to understand that needing to understand what triggers were when it came down to having to deal with uh, the things that as you're growing, you, you're you learning all these new uh, tools and techniques in order to help help you the best you can to be um, as healthy and successful in your life as you possibly can. But one thing is always to be aware of something called triggers. And, you know, if you haven't really worked on yourself um, through therapy. Triggers can be the things that will cause you to kind of spin out of control. And I, you know, there's, I'm still in therapy right now. And I'm, I'm finding that I'm having to unleash a, a lot of old traumas from the past. And, you know, now I'm in a much healthier place to address them without having an addiction. So, you know, when I'm triggered by talking about some of the harder, heavier stuff, it's, I, uh, it can be really intense and you can feel really raw and very vulnerable as you're going through the therapy. And those triggers in itself though, can be, you know, first can be very uncomfortable, but you, you become as over time, the more healthier you get, those triggers become points of where you say, Oh, I'm being literally triggered right now. And what can I do? What tool can I use in order to either calm myself down or help me get through this, this moment, um, in order to find myself to be rebalanced again. And, uh, but I will definitely say being medicated is a world of difference when it comes down to managing the ups and downs and triggers. I, I'm on a number of medications and, uh, mood disorder medications are, are awful for causing weight gain, but, uh, you know, I'm on anti-manic, um, which is also, I think technically it's called an antipsychotic or yeah. that's the classification, but it's used for the, for anti-manic yeah. to just control the s- symptoms in the States, I guess. For yes. That side, yeah. Yes. I will say though, that, uh, that I do kind of miss my, my manic states. It was very, uh, lively whenever those states would happen but you know they they became destructive and so you know in order for me to be the best person that I can possibly be and be the best you know partner to you and and to be responsible inside my communities and uh, lovingly respectful to my family it's taking that responsibility of actually having to be medicated and you know that is one of the things that you do have to accept is that if you want to have a very healthy life that allows you to do things you know to travel to go to school to work to have relationships you know, someone with, with a mood disorder needs to majority of the time. Now, some people I've heard been able to have extreme, uh, dedicated, healthy lifestyles. And they, you know, it's not as extreme like their states that they can be unmedicated. Right. Um, but those are very few and far in between that I've, I've experienced and witnessed. But also usually it's more than just 
like I, I can't remember her. She was an author with bipolar, quite a well-known one, but she's one of the ones who's unmedicated. But for her, it's like an entire lifestyle change, everything from re- like very strict diet, very strict sleeping, very strict low stress environment, low stress work, like everything in the environment is so regulated and, and, and considered and controlled to help not basically trigger a state or spike any particular state, uh, whether it's depression or mania or sort of the, the floating in between with mixed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's very difficult to be able to do that. I mean, all of us, whether struggling with bipolar or depression or anxiety or even just, quote, normies, <laughs> I guess, um, you know, would love greater work-life balance. Um, I lament all the time about not having that, that that honestly, I would just be so much more content having, you know, working just three days a week, or even just if I could work at home, it would it would just make me a lot happier just to be around you, because mm-hmm. um, I find that does impact. Like there, there is a admittedly a certain satisfaction that comes from you know doing work and being able to uh, get a lot accomplished at work and just having coming home without anything on your plate and just feeling like you can actually just focus on home or relaxing and stuff. But uh, you know, admittedly, it would be nice to have more balance in that and you know the field that that i am in you know sometimes balance is sometimes out of the question when there's because it's all project driven deadline driven and you know it's hard to maintain that at times oh yeah and you know it definitely impacts sometimes your emotional states when it comes down to having to manage your depression and anxiety yeah and and, you know the uh, the importance of work-life balance is really stressed uh especially for people who have to manage uh, a mood disorder Mm -hmm. and you know and these are the things that we we're really trying to become aware of of the the choices that we make when it comes down to uh, working and uh, having that balance. And I know for me right now, we we are kind of going through the, the thoroughs of with me kind of going back to work and you needing to remind me that I need to have a, a healthier work schedule um, because I, for many years, uh, about six years, I've worked uh, overnights and it had... Uh, wreak some havoc uh, on my emotional states. And, you know, I haven't been working for a while. I had to take a break uh, just to get better. And now now I have the possibility of working back in my field, but working back in the field usually means it's, uh, you know, they're open 24-7. And so that possibility would be while I'd be working these inconsistent overnight shifts again. Well, it's it's relief work, so it's on call, and yeah, these in that sort of kind of helping social services field, kind of frontline work. You know, there's obviously the people with seniority. I would assume usually would pick their nine to five day shifts, so that leaves essentially swing shifts. So you know, from twelve to eight or is it later sometimes swing shifts they all vary really depends on where you're working and then of course the graveyard shifts because most of these facilities need some sort of 24 7 monitoring or assistance if someone ods or needs help medical help or something like that Mm -hmm. um or just monitoring in general yeah and and i understand that too because actually i worked overnight graveyard shifts at ebay when we had met and uh, although you didn't stay there as long I had worked that for about a little over three years, overnight shifts. And mm-hmm. you know, while that was, it was different, I was in my early to mid twenties. So, you know, it's one thing to try to slog through that kind of shift when you're younger. It, it was still rough. Like eventually, like I haven't actually got fired from really too many jobs before, but that one I did. And that was just because I was exhausted all the time. Um, I would get written it's a it was a call center and you know in and, and it's funny after reading and taking psychology classes like up to second year psychology learning a bit more about you know neurology and just the circadian rhythms and it's like I realized how they had the office set up for a graveyard shift was extremely stupid so 
essentially, you know, when the sun sets, you know, there's less light out, melatonin naturally, the hormone naturally gets released into your body and that slowly starts to get you kind of a little groggy and kind of preps your body to go into sleep mode. And so low light conditions, especially when it is at night, you know, isn't really ideal if you want to keep your workers, you know, awake. And so throughout, you know, this three level office, they would shut down all the lights. Wow. <laughs> all, no, like no, like another two by four troffer lights are on, everything's shut off. All you have is the glow of your monitor and just utter blackness. And so, Gee, you wonder why, like, eat, like yeah. already you're struggling just trying to stay awake, you know, regardless of the caffeine drinks you're staying, you're drinking or energy drinks, it's not working. Um, and of course, if you somehow hadn't, didn't, you got anything less than eight hours sleep, you're fighting against that. And then you're just kind of nodding off. And of course they give you shit for it. And anyways, but at the time too, I had a lot of other relationship stuff going on too. That's just sort of all of it kind of compounding together, but but I couldn't, it would be hard to do that again, I think, even though there's parts of the, you know, shift work, or graveyard shift work that I do enjoy, like a lot, like just not having to deal with traffic is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, at least where I worked, it was always going against the flow of rush hour. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at night there's nothing, but in the morning it was like just watching uh, rush hour back-to-back gridlock on the other side of the highway and just enjoying coasting home and with, home. <laughs> with a nice sunrise. It was always beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also noticed that because where we live, uh, there is, you know, it's further up on the 49th parallel. And so you have the summers, it can get dark as late as maybe 9.30, 9.45 p.m. in the summer. In the winter, it can get dark as early as maybe four thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon. So, but when you work overnight shifts, it's always dark when you, if you wake up in the evening and it's always, almost always some sunrise in the morning. And so yeah, I, I found I wasn't actually as affected by things like sad, I guess, a seasonal affective disorder where, mm. you, um, so it was weird. So like, you know, there, there's pros and cons to it. And, and, you know, there are certain elements that I do miss, um, not the very least is just not having to joust against uh, morning rush hour in Vancouver. So, but I, I don't know if I could do it really effectively anymore. It's and and that must be hard on you too to try to go back into that type of shift work. Yeah, I you know just reflecting on that, you know, once you've had a break and you know kind of get back into a routine where you you know it's been really nice to be able to wake up with you in the morning and uh and do regular things and and go know, to bed every night with each other at the same time. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, it, yeah, it was. I didn't know how much I missed that because it was. Well, yeah, you said you had worked overnight shift work for six years, but it was it that long that we didn't, weren't able to sleep together in the same bed. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like that long, but, but I guess so. I mean, obviously on, on weekends mm-hmm. we would, but. But then I mean, when I got the other job where I worked on the weekends as well, we weren't, uh, yeah, I was gone seven days a week. Yeah. Yeah. You would, uh, like we would still end up having the chance to spend, you know, dinners together, which is mm-hmm, so on swing. Important. Yeah. If you had a swing shift, you know, that would, you know, you would get back at like midnight or 1 a.m. So really you would, you would be able to sleep together, but that's, you wouldn't actually be able to eat dinner or do anything or watch anything together. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it. Um, even swing versus grave. I mean, daytime, of course, would align the most, but that's a hard yeah, shift to get. Yeah, trying to get the daytime shift in my field is, is pretty hard because those are much more coveted positions. Uh, So, you know, I'm kind of exploring a little bit more in other fields and just trying to see what's available for day shift because, you know, I'm taking to heart what it is that, you know, what you're saying and how you're feeling, uh, especially with your concern towards me of how I'm going to take care of my health. And Well, I think it's also important to talk a bit more about why I have such a concern about uh, the irregular, well, not just overnight schedule, which is high, high probability with, you know, uh, on call work, just because that's usually the shift that they often will need 
when you're low seniority, plus the fact that it's um, essentially you can't predict, right? If you're on call, uh, what's the minimum amount of time they have to give you? Like, like Sometimes, you know, if they need someone in the morning, they'll call you that morning. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Which for is- a night shift, they'll call you that that morning for the night shift right and hopefully you are given enough time to get be some able sleep to get some sleep <laughs> yeah. and, um but sometimes you know the night shift will call at nine o'clock in the evening and when their shift starts at 11 saying that they're sick and so which is crazy like and if you have been up the whole day doing other things or you know suddenly maybe you even if you got up late at like 10 a.m. and suddenly now you're called at 9 p.m. It's like, hey, you got to do an eight-hour shift, mm-hmm. nine-hour shift. And it's, it's like, how are you going to do that without really strong stimulants mm-hmm. that aren't coffee? And it's that that's really rough. And, you know, why this is a concern, like, that would be rough on anybody. Mm-hmm. But with various mood disorders, especially bipolar, regular sleep pattern is really key. And this is not just something that... Well, something that you had informed me about, yeah. something that I know that your uh, psychiatrist. psychiatrist had, you know, expressed concern while you're working this overnight shift that it's because uh, essentially destabilized sleep pattern or not enough sleep or a combination of both often will trigger states, mm-hmm. uh, will either trigger mania, trigger depression. And I think I was reading this recently. It was actually a bit of a, a short video on YouTube about bipolar and I might link it actually after because it's it's a nice concise mm-hmm. like five minute little video that just kind of does a rundown from an actual licensed therapist about those symptoms but sure but because uh, she actually talks a bit about rapid cycling which you know I don't hear too many others talk about and found that interesting and so and going into more like I didn't like rapid cycling is I think four times a year then there's it's not the official term, but it's the kind of colloquial term. It's like ultra rapid cycling, which is, I think, more than – I got to look this up. But it, it was like either four times a month, and then there was ultra, ultra rapid cycling, which was essentially like four times a week. Wow. Or And then there's another version, which is almost daily, like just mm-hmm. rotating rapidly through. And, and apparently- It's very emotional. Those uh, those who ultra uh, cycle, they, if you've ever witnessed somebody who's really emotional all the time, and it's, it's not just a little bit of emotion, it's like the world is ending emotion. Mm. Uh, and it's real to them. And, but that's their reality. Yeah. Um, especially when it's untreated. Yeah, and and but sleep was a key thing that this therapist was pointing out is actually seems to be at least in the research so far because this is quite new. Like even years ago, I think when you had been given the rapid cycling diagnosis, I don't. And even at school, when I was reading about uh, learning about psychology, like bipolar and schizoaffective disorders, and sort of the general mood disorders in second year college, there I, I don't remember anything about the ultra rapid cycling Mm -hmm. that was so this is must be a little bit newer research and so there seems to be a connection between uh, non-regular destabilized circadian rhythm of sleep patterns Mm -hmm. and it it deeply kind of triggering the rapid cycling and so the suggestion that the therapist had is like well if you have able to stabilize and have more regular sleep patterns, it seems to slow the frequency of the ultra cycling or the rapid cycling. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was one of my major concerns, I guess, of, of such a, a shift is it's just so, it'd be so hard on you and well, admittedly on me as well, because mm-hmm. it would cause a lot of stress and a lot of pain to you as well. Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's trying to figure out what will work and what won't work. And especially, you know, I, I work in a, a specific field and, you know, sometimes it's just trying to see what type of schedule or work will fit for somebody like me. And, you know, I was talking about uh, the other day, the importance of work. And now people with mood disorders, the harsh reality is that eventually they stop working. And because the longer you're away from the workforce, it's harder to get back into working. And 
sometimes those big long stretches of time it doesn't look good on a resume or to an employer and sadly you know over the years I've had like I've been very lucky with being hired but I've had big chunks of of like months nine months this time it's six months or five months of um of no work and I had um someone bring it up saying how are you going to explain that that uh empty section was this a potential employer or uh, just someone who is I was working with just talking about possible employment oh I see and she just made it really aware to me she says yeah you know unless you can find somebody who can overlook that those questions raise uh concerns because it's it's saying um is this employee or future employee going to be able to do the work are they long term Mm. are they uh capable and you know and there's a lot of unanswered questions and so you know i kind of jumped at it saying okay i need to work i need to get back into this because it's and it is a sad reality that people with the more extreme forms of mood disorder stop working and you just end up living in your diagnosis. You live in, in with your symptoms all the time. And sometimes it's just learning to, and I think it's really important to be able to understand, yes, you have um, a condition, but you also are very much human. And you have all these things that you want to strive to have in your life, ideally. And, and you know, I, like I can understand that, well, we live in a very capitalist society. The need to have, you know, independence, financial autonomy, and sort of self-autonomy is sort of prized very highly. But, you know, I think on the flip side of that, it 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 creates a society that's just very oppressive is a bit extreme a word, but it just doesn't give opportunities for real dialogue because what it creates is an environment of fear. Um, it makes me think back to, this was a couple of years ago. I, I honestly can't remember where this is in North America, I believe. Um, but it was a pilot who locked himself in the cockpit cabin and then crashed an entire passenger plane that he was flying with, and I don't remember how many on board, uh, and I don't remember remember even if they all died or if some did survive, but they found out afterwards whether it was a suicide note or if it was just journaling or something he'd left or or maybe relatives had informed them that the authorities that essentially he had been struggling with the diagnosis of, I believe, clinical depression. Mm. But the problem is, I believe, especially as a pilot, if that diagnosis ever comes out, you are automatically disqualified from your future employment. Like you're just terminated immediately immediately because you're considered a threat. I mean, in this, and unfortunately in this case, it like it played out in the ultimate threat, but yet it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because, okay, so you have someone, they do need serious help. And, but if he goes out in like in a public way, or at least goes even goes to a therapist, and maybe the therapist feels like, oh, I've thought about you know flying the plane in the river, and it's like, well, you know, you have to be taken off, you can't be employed, you're a threat to your work, and so through fear and you know not wanting to not be able to you know to support himself, you know he doesn't disclose it mm-hmm. because you're trying to look out for yourself. Well, you know that is what the you know, one of the big issues that faces a lot of people who do have these diagnoses is the the stigma of having to live with... There's stigma and there's real life consequences of, yes, of the stigma, but even just, hey, I might not, I might be homeless tomorrow because if I come out, I lose my job. And maybe in his case, there's no family that can support him, no family that can back him up. He's on his own. Mm -hmm. So loss of autonomy and, and being able to take care of oneself. So, I mean, it's tragic all all around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sad that we live in a society that, you know, we've come a long way, mm-hmm. let's say even the last 50 or 100 years in terms of discussion around mental illness, but there's a lot 
further that we can go. Oh yeah. At least in terms of being able to have an open dialogue about it. I, I, and it really depends on, on your type of employer. Uh, I, you know, very rarely has had to disclose. Mm -hmm. Um, and I believe only one employer really knew, uh, that I shared with, and it turned out to be okay. Thank goodness. But, you know, most of the times people don't, understand or trust things that they don't know and there's a lot of that that ignorant mentality you know they don't know so they assume uh that people are going to act in a certain way because they have this diagnosis and which is a shame because you know there's a lot of people out there that actually wants to be uh, working in life and going to school and wanting to better themselves. Um, but there's a lot of things holding people back though, especially when they're trying to get healthy and get better and reintegrate themselves back into society. You know, since we're talking a bit about, you know, the emotional states, uh, I wanted to actually talk a bit about the connection between the emotional bipolar states and suicide. And, you know, the odds, especially when somebody has had a suicide attempt in their lifetime, they, the odds of them having another one is very high. And usually that comes with the emotional states that happen. And for bipolar itself is usually uh, when a depressive state is happening. And as it's ending, there's a surge of energy where, so this is where a mixed state would happen. So you're depressed plus getting high energy. Now you have the energy to follow through with what you originally were depressed about. Right, because in, in a full-blown, like, especially in, I've had experience through clinical depression as well, or monopolar, but, you know, you don't, if you're really hit hard by it, you almost don't even have the energy to do anything. Mm-mm. You don't have the energy to act. If it's really bad, you don't even have the energy to get out of bed or mm-hmm. to just do basic functions. Um, so yeah, that makes sense in that place. You know, you don't you don't have the energy to really even attempt a suicide. But in a strange way, as you start getting more energy, it's still I guess you know it makes sense. It's still mixed in with sort of the dark kind of spiraling negative thoughts. Yeah. Well, sometimes something I deal with is something called irrational thoughts and suicidal ideations. And I've had this since I was a teenager. Mm. And it, what it is, is just, you know, you can kind of get a thought in your head. You can be totally fine. You're going about your life. And then suddenly an idea, just a small idea just starts floating in the back of your mind saying, you know, you don't want to be here. And it can, it can escalate into something more extreme, but it's just a, a small voice that just kind of re- is set on repeat through your mind all the time. You could be talking with people, engaging, working, doing your daily life, but that thought is consistently there. And that's where I found that having medication is very helpful in making that um, type of ideations quieter. Um, so, you know, that's definitely a correlation between these types of thoughts and ideations and then with the high susceptibility of someone having an attempt. And, you know, um, recently I, earlier this year, I have had an attempt due to the high pressures of school. I was in a program briefly and, uh, it was very, very stressful, but I didn't really realize the impact of my medication having on my memory. Uh, when I was in school years ago, I did not experience this, but this is between then and now. Um, and I've had many numerous medication changes. I've never had such a blunted memory. And this one, was it, do you think it was from the combination of medication that you're now not on, or is it, I think it was more the antipsychotic, right? That one has a severe dampening effect on. Yeah, all of them do. And it's all, is it relatively permanent or do you find it like if you stop taking for a bit, it comes back or. I heard that it, you know, things that I've read was that it can slowly be recovered, Mm. but you need to stop the medication. Medication, yeah. And, you know, and that's what I did while I was in school, which ultimately led, you know, high stress, not sleeping, 
working an overnight shift and then stopping medication. You know, that was just uh, a recipe of disaster right there, which led into uh, my attempt. And but it was also, I remember also combined, there was also heavy drinking at the time. Too. Yes, I was drinking every day, um, you know, just trying to cope with uh, the stress. Yeah. And uh, and it's an awful feeling when you're, it feels like you're just flo- trying to stay afloat. Mm. And, um, you know, and of course I did it all in, I was very unhealthy uh, wasn't taking the precautions and assuming that I can handle everything when, and I wasn't reaching out for help when I should have been mm-hmm. and addressing, you know, at least having much more healthier coping mechanisms in place, but I didn't. So these are, these are some of the li- life lessons that I've come to understand is like, now I have to be very selective of what I do and how I do it. I, sometimes, you know, you have to have a, re- it's a reality check of when you, you say, oh, wait a second, I shouldn't be doing that. Or I shouldn't be, you know, always fully aware. It's like, how is this going to affect me? And, you know, lately, because we've been having discussions about me wanting to work while you know, I, about me potentially working overnights, you know, there was a defiant side of me of saying, well, let's don't remind me that I have to go to sleep. Don't remind me that I need to, um, be healthy. I can do this. But then that's totally disregarding the whole fact that I do have a condition that doesn't allow me to function properly. But in those moments, while I'm having these discussions with you, I don't like to, suddenly I I don't want to be reminded of my potential handicap Mm. and it doesn't feel good, right? Suddenly before you're able to do things and then now you can't, you know, it's, it's a lot of having to grow with the reality of what it is you can and can't do in life. And especially the older we get, the more susceptible we are to the regular wear and tear of our body and mind. Yeah, there's the more things that you just have to accept that are changing and that you have to adapt to. I mean, like in my father's case, you know, he's he's just early 70s, but completely lost sight in one eye. And so uh, the other eye kind of barely functioning. So, you know, he's having to learn to get around with sound, with with feel and touch. And so it's a very different experience and it's it's obviously a challenging experience but you know when these faculties either leave us due to old age or due to due to an accident or just simply how whether it's born this way or through trauma or terribly painful experiences shape us in a way that sort of i, I don't know i wouldn't use the word handicap but you know, this is just how it is. And so it's trying to work within that, you know, how it is. Like it's the example I gave for myself, you know, it's for me, my sex and porn addiction, you know, it's just a reality is, you know, I don't feel safe or comfortable around a computer or phone that has, you know, open internet access. And that's just, that's just how it is. And there, it doesn't mean that there are not times in small limited windows where I can be, um, but it's always a risk factor and it's always something I have to consider. And it's more compassionate to myself to, to choose to, you know, enable those filters, disable the internet, whatever it, it needs to be done in order to create that sense of security and safety, not only for myself, but in byproduct then for you. So it's it's just accepting that, you know, there's limitations. Uh, I don't have free and open internet access. I mean, then there's another question, especially because I've been doing this for years, um, with varying success with my essay, but I would say actively been doing it since 2009. So I guess it's been a decade. Um, And so I've always had filters of some kind since then, either single, double, or sometimes even triple layers of different applications on, you know, through 
either DNS level or router level or applications on software level that kind of filter and that I have opted to filter my own internet just because I know I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And and so certainly in the beginning, there's a lot of, and and not just in the beginning, sometimes throughout a lot of just frustration and annoyance. And it's, you know, some of that comes down to the ADHD where sometimes I just want things now. I want solution now fast, just here now. I can't wait. It's just get very impatient, but, or, you know, maybe I'm, I have a solution that, oh, if I only had the internet, I could just look it up and figure it out. But, you know, in, let's say in that moment, it's by myself and I don't have the ability to. So, but I can either hate it or despise it or just accept that, okay, I will have to look this up at some other point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that one's been a hard one because I think I used to pride myself on someone who could find information really quickly and provide answers and be capable in that way, especially with the, you know, the growing internet and the ease of access of information at the time. It just, it's sort of, you know, that I was just that tech guy. Mm-hmm. But that's something I've had to kind of learn to let go of and maybe even be okay appearing a bit more ignorant, which is, you know, it's, that's not really authentic knowledge anyways. It's just me accessing something else or, or I always know how to find information, but it's not necessarily my information. So it's just like learning to kind of accept the sort of, it's a bit dramatic to call it a disability, but just to accept the limitation that is in there. And, and in some ways this is a self-imposed limitation, but it's done because of the limitations that the addiction has. And I've tried it the other way with open access and it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. So I suppose in some ways it's a compassionate choice for myself. Mm-hmm. No, I would definitely agree. And I know that these are the things that we have to have in place, especially when, you know, we've come to understand how we are and, you know, how we can actually function with our the things that we have to deal with personally in our in our own lives but i i know that um it's important that we support each other especially when we and i think it's really important that we do support each other in the journeys that we have to do together so and it's good to know and it's nice to know that you're not alone doing it no of course absolutely Well, on that note, you know, I really want to thank you for listening and, you know, letting me go ahead and share and ramble on about. No, that's not true. It's not rambling. It's you're sharing open heartedly and honestly, and I'm always grateful for that. Oh, thank you. And I, and, you know, I really appreciate that you have learned so much about things that I have to, you know, work with in my life. And, and I think that's really important to, you know, I think that's really important for anybody to have, whether you have a condition or not. Yeah. And so, you know, just on that note, I just want to say thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, And thank you too, Bear. I will say here, uh, we would like to thank all you listeners out there for joining us. And we would love to share your company again. And remember everyone, take care of your body, mind and soul and take care of each other. And don't forget to have some fun along the way. Take Take care care till till next time. time.